You are listening to a sermon preached at the First Christian Church of St. Ignatius in St. Ignatius, Montana. For more information, you can visit us at www.firstchristiansti.org. I hope that didn't seem too self-indulgent. We were just having a good time up here and... Um, Hope that worked out for all of you at that point. Uh, Please turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. And what I'm about to tell you probably will not come as a surprise to most of you. But uh, apparently it has come as a surprise to a number of other people. So let's take a look at this here for just a minute. For decades... Psychologists and other researchers assumed that the mother-child bond was the most important one in a kid's life. They focused on studying those relationships. And however a child turned out, mom often got the credit or blame. Within the last several decades, though, scientists are increasingly realizing just how much dads matter. We're now finding that not only are fathers influential, sometimes they have more influence on kids' development than moms, said Ronald Rohner, the director of the Center for the Study of Interpersonal Acceptance and Rejection at the University of Connecticut. And I guess I'm kind of marveling that they even have one of those, but they do. Rohner and his colleagues recently, this is a 2012 article, recently reviewed decades of studies on parental acceptance and rejection across the globe, Unsurprisingly, parents have a major effect on their kids. When kids feel rejected or unloved by mom and dad, they're more likely to become hostile, aggressive, and emotionally unstable. Parental rejection also can lead to low self-esteem, feelings of inadequacy, and negative worldviews. According to Rohner, that is true for both parents. But, in some cases, dad is a more important factor than mom. Now, none of this is said to minimize the role that mothers play or the importance that they play. You can't have one without the other and have the complete picture, but it it happens, and and we know this is just this one article and the observations they're making here. It continues. Behavior problems, delinquency, depression, substance abuse, and overall psychological adjustment are all more closely linked to a dad's rejection than mom's, Rohner said. By the same token, the researchers found that dad's love is sometimes a stronger influence for children than mom's. Knowing that kids feel loved by their father is a better predictor of young adults' sense of well-being, of happiness, of life satisfaction, than knowing about the extent to which they feel loved by their mothers, Rohner said. Dads may also be responsible for endowing their kids with a stick-with-it-ness My dad called it stick-to-itiveness, but whatever, this is the article. That serves them well in life. In a study of two-parent families published in the Journal of Early Adolescence, Brigham Young University researchers found that dad's parenting style is more closely linked to whether teens will exhibit persistence than mom's parenting. A persistent personality, in turn, was related to less delinquency and more engagement in school over time. 
And all that information was taken from an online article at a website called either livescience.com or livescience.com, you can't tell when you read it, dated June 15 of 2012. In summary, I think it is reasonable to say that a father's influence has a significant impact on his children, either good or bad. And another way to put that is the title of today's message, Who Your Daddy Is Matters. Okay? And while this article was concerned with the ideas of fathers in a family situation, literal physical fathers, not necessarily biological, mind you, but literal physical fathers there in, in that role, who your spiritual father is matters very much as well. This topic, spiritual fathers, is central to the discussion that Jesus was having with the Jews in our passage in John chapter 8 this morning. One of the things that I think we need to understand about our spiritual father as opposed to those who fill that role in our lives in other ways, is that we choose. We choose, okay, who it will be. As we look at the interaction between Jesus and the Jews on this topic, I want to challenge you to consider who your spiritual father is. And what uh, John was talking about here this morning, uh, I was looking at, listening to you this morning, John, thinking... That's going to go well with uh, the message today. Because I want to challenge you not only to consider who your spiritual father is, but I want you to think about what evidence there is to back that up. And how you are influencing others in helping them choose their spiritual father. We'll begin in John chapter 8, verse 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So, if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Now, when we left off last week in verse 30, we read that many came to believe in Jesus. And that sounds great, okay? And we don't know whether it was because of the miracles or because of Jesus' teaching or both of those things, which is what I think probably more likely. But there were many who found the idea of following Jesus appealing. They're drawn to him. But there's just one problem with that. They didn't know what following Jesus really meant. Following Jesus means obedience to his word. One of the hallmarks of true disciples of Jesus is that they keep his commands. Now, does that mean that his followers never make mistakes or that they never sin? No, of course not. But their lives are primarily characterized by doing what Jesus says to do. As a result of knowing Jesus' word and living it out, Jesus says that we also know the truth. And, you know, I could spend an hour or more talking just about that one statement because you know what has happened to the concept of truth in our society, that truth is, well, truth is what you make it. Truth is relative. Truth is different for you than it is for me, and there's all kinds of truth, and which one do you want to talk about? No, no, we know that truth is a different concept, don't we? We know that truth is absolute. We know that truth is what God says it is. So as a result of knowing Jesus' word, 
and living it out, we also know the truth. We're not taken in any longer by Satan's lies that enslave us and lead us to death. Instead, we're freed from what the author of Hebrews calls the deceitfulness of sin. And in Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul talks about being deceived by sin, being in bondage to sin, and being killed by sin. Jesus says that knowing and living his word causes us to know truth and to be freed from sin's control. The Jews thought Jesus was talking about physical slavery like their ancestors had experienced in Egypt. But Jesus was talking about spiritual slavery, which is even worse. Physical slavery can last, as terrible as it is, can last only as long as physical life lasts. Spiritual slavery can continue through eternity unless a person finds freedom in becoming a follower of Jesus. And Jesus offers a choice of having a different spiritual father. Those who are enslaved to sin have Satan as their spiritual father, as Jesus is going to point out a little farther down in our passage. But God allows us to choose to become his adopted children. In Romans chapter 8, Galatians chapter 4, and Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul again refers to Christians as those, as those who have been adopted as the very children of God. Now, here in John chapter 8, Jesus makes it clear that this adoption is found only through Him. Let's go on to verse 37. <clears throat> Jesus, speaking to the Jews, says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me, because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore you also do the things which you heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. Now biologically, biologically speaking, the Jews to whom Jesus was speaking here were the descendants of Abraham. But Jesus was correct when he said that they wanted to kill him because they didn't accept his words. This is the opposite, by the way, of those who continue in Jesus' words as his true followers. No, these people have rejected Jesus' words and so they want to get rid of him altogether. Let's just get him out of the picture. We don't even want to think about him anymore. If we accept Jesus' words, John put it this way, if we call ourselves Christians, if we've been baptized, we belong to God, right? Okay. If we accept Jesus' words, it changes what we do in the same way. If we don't accept His words, it changes what we do. Words and deeds, but, but I should say in a very different direction, right? Words and deeds are very much related, and then there's this expression that we're so familiar with, like father, like son. And I had just a, just a little commentary here. I, I do not always use perfect English when I speak, but I can do fairly well, not good, but well. I can do fairly well when I really try. Both of my parents used good English grammar and vocabulary as I was growing up. I'm pretty sure they still do. That hasn't changed. That's good. The point is that they influenced my speech as well as my actions. 
And just as earthly fathers influence us a great deal in what we say and do, our choice of spiritual fathers will influence us greatly in what we say and do. Jesus said, I speak the things which I have seen with my Father. And what that means is that everything Jesus taught is completely, absolutely compatible with God's nature and character. And he implies a contrast here with the Jews as they do the things which they heard from their father. Clearly not the same father that Jesus is claiming. And as we'll see, uh, we'll see that here in the next section. And so the expression, like father, like son, is demonstrated here. Except we have two different fathers and two different sets of sons doing two different things and saying two different things. Earthly fathers set patterns of speech and behavior for their children, as an example. If dad, not my dad, just so you know, not my dad, but if dad has a vocabulary that would make a sailor blush, how do you expect the children to express themselves? Yeah. I went to school with a young man who uh, had a far different vocabulary than what I was accustomed to hearing around my house, and uh, I wondered how he had acquired that, and then I met his father. And I knew how he had acquired that. If dad has a drinking problem, or a gambling problem, or a morality problem, or some other character problem, how do you expect the children to behave? Don't we expect children to act like their parents? Well, that's true in the spiritual realm as well. And the Jews wanted to claim Abraham as their father. And so that intrigues me. You know, here we are talking about how fathers influence their children. They wanted to claim Abraham as their father. And so I wonder, what would that have looked like if Abraham had really been their father, right? What do you know of Abraham's character? Well, certainly he wasn't perfect. You know, twice he claimed that his wife Sarah was his sister because he was afraid that he would be killed so others could marry her. So he lied and she's my sister, which wasn't really a total lie of the half lie, but he intended to deceive, right? I don't get it. It made sense to him at the time. And Abraham, here's, you know, another thing he did. He followed Sarah's advice to have a child with her servant Hagar rather than waiting patiently for God to fulfill his promise to give Abraham and Sarah a son. But what do you know about Abraham's character? Abraham is described as the friend of God. There's a passage, Isaiah 41.8 and James 2.23, both Old and New Testament. Abraham is called the friend of God. Abraham left his homeland at God's command. Obedience, right? He frequently built altars and called on the name of the Lord in his travels. He had a close relationship with God. Most significantly, Abraham was willing to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice because God told him to. Now, of course, we know God didn't make him follow through with that, but he was this close, and Abraham didn't know he wasn't going to have to follow through with that. Uh, Hebrews tells us that he did that in faith, considering having never, and I have to insert here, and having never seen nor heard of anything like this, considering that if he actually wound up killing Isaac, that God would be able to raise Isaac from the dead. That's the faith that Abraham had. Okay, He was going to obey, even at that price. So in Genesis 22.12, God's response to Abraham's obedience there was, Now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, 
from me. And in that, there's a parallel, of course, with what God has done for us in not withholding his only son from us. Abraham believed God's words. Abraham obeyed God's words. Abraham feared God with awe and reverence. And so that's how those who claim to be his children should have conducted themselves. Instead, they wanted to kill Jesus, a man whose crime was telling the truth as it came from God. Oh, you're telling the truth as it came from God. We want to kill you then. Abraham would not have done that. So their claim to be Abraham's children didn't ring true. They could say it, but that didn't make it so. Go on to verse 41. Jesus is speaking still to the Jews, and he says, You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them, because you are not of God. That's uh, pretty intense, actually. When Jesus points out that the Jews are doing what their spiritual father does, they find an opportunity here to be nasty with Jesus. I don't know. It's possible. I'm speculating here. Could it be that rumors... The rumors that surrounded Mary and Joseph before Jesus' birth, you remember, she showed up pregnant while they were still just engaged, hadn't actually gotten married yet, and you know there was talk, right? Is it possible that those rumors had survived these 30 years? I think it is possible. Taken in that light, the response of the Jews could be heard like this, We are not illegitimate children like you are, Jesus. Yeah. Well, if that's not what they meant, they probably meant that as Jews, they were the proper children of God simply because they had been born Jews. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? Okay? They were born Jews, and so that automatically makes them somehow, you know, righteous with God. Is that how that works? Is that what it takes to be a true Jew? When I was 12 years old, I spent some time in the Seattle Children's Hospital. I think they called it the Children's Orthopedic Hospital back then, but they've shortened the name now. Uh, too much signage or something, I don't know. Anyway, one of my doctors was a man who described himself as an atheist Jew. He said that he didn't believe in God, but he practiced Judaism. He had Judaism as his heritage, you know, he was ethnically uh, a Jew. And he practiced Judaism because he liked the ritual. Now, do you think that he would properly be called a child of God? Let me put it this way. Here's a man who literally disowned God by saying, I don't even believe in him. Does somebody like that still get to be his child? Well, not in that condition, no. You know, we have this concept that gets thrown around a lot. Well, we're all God's children. You know, we're all God's creation. And there's a sense in which we are all God's children, but not like people use that. 
we're not all in the family, so to speak, just because we were created by him. No, there's, there's more to that. And, and I wonder, you know, aren't there people who believe that they are Christians because that's how they were raised? You probably know somebody who would call themselves a Christian. Well, I was raised in a Christian home. I, I, you know, I was, I was born a Christian. I grew up a Christian. That's not how that works. Okay? You're not born a Christian any more than you're born an electrician or a homeowner. It doesn't work that way. Okay? You have to become one of those things. Being raised in a Christian household may and should increase the probability that you will choose to become a Christian, but you still have to choose. The Jews claimed to be the children of God, but they chose to be the children of Satan. And that's exactly what Jesus calls them here in verse 44. And then Jesus goes on to describe what their father is like. This is, this is not the nicest thing you could ever say to somebody, but it is true. We have to remember that Jesus was the one saying it. Jesus described Satan as a murderer, as a liar, and as the father of lies. Jesus said that there is no truth in Satan at all. And I like the way that the NIV translates this part of verse 44. It says about Satan, when he lies, he speaks his native language. It just comes out because that's what he's filled with. That's how that's his nature. The Jews to whom Jesus spoke had proven them to be had proven themselves to be just like Satan, and Jesus called them out on that fact. In contrast, in God there is nothing false at all. And this is not what you hear. You hear people criticizing God all the time. Well, God's inconsistent this way, and God lied about that, and God did, shouldn't have done this, and whatever. There's nothing false in God. Titus chapter 1, verse 2 says that God cannot lie. James chapter 1, verse 17 says that there's no variation or shifting shadow in God. God isn't someone who's true today and false tomorrow. God is utterly, absolutely, incontrovertibly, consistently true. And Jesus said that those who actually have God as their spiritual father hear God's words. That word hear really means listen to and obey. They listen to and obey his words. The Jews that Jesus is talking to here were not listening to and obeying God's word. Therefore, they could not actually be his spiritual children. Go to verse 48. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, and the prophets also, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Now, when the argument isn't going your way, there's other times when this is appropriate, but this is not one of those instances. When the argument is not going your way, what's often the next step? Name calling, right? That's the, that's the next thing you engage in. Well, yeah, well, your mom dresses you funny. Never mind. Anyway, we're not going there. If you can discredit your opponent, then it doesn't matter whether what he's saying 
is true or not. At least that's the popular perception. It's called an ad hominem attack. And it means if you can't attack the content of what the person is saying, attack the person himself. And that's exactly what's happening here. That's exactly what the Jews were doing here to Jesus. They say, do we not rightly say you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Now you think about what that was like for them. We, we hear Samaritan and to us it's just like, okay, that's another one of those names in the Bible. We don't get it. No. Calling Jesus a Samaritan for them was like us using the worst possible ethnic slur imaginable. And I'm not even going to start naming any because I don't want you thinking about those words, okay? It's... it's under ordinary circumstances, other people, other times, other places, these are fighting words. Wars have been fought to try to clear up and, and re- retain or uh, regain the honor of someone who had been so accused. Been called words like Samaritan, okay? That's how big a deal this is. And then demon possession, well that was often associated with insanity as well as being spiritually lost. Jesus denies being demon-possessed. He just flat-out ignores the accusation of being a Samaritan. Jesus exhibits none of the characteristics of demon possession, but maintains the fact that he honors God, the Father. Yet these Jews are dishonoring him, which if they really were children of God, they would honor him as he honors God the Father. But I want you to look at verse 51, because right here, in the middle of this discussion about spiritual fathers... Jesus says what, must, what may be the most important thing of the entire passage. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And Jesus wasn't referring to physical death here. As uncomfortable as the thought of it might make us, and as much as we might like to avoid it, physical death is not the real problem, except for how it makes our spiritual condition at that moment Permanent. Spiritual death. Now there's a problem. The death described in Revelation as one of eternal torment and suffering. And I mean eternal torment and suffering. That is something we can avoid. True followers of Jesus, those who know and live out his word, will never experience the eternity of separation from God that spiritual death Involved. Throughout this discussion, in spite of the opposition from the Jews, the message rings out that Jesus saves. And that may be the most important thing said here. That there's salvation. Acts 4.12 says that there's salvation found in no other name. No other name is given under, uh, under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Salvation is found in no one else. Only in Jesus. Once again... The narrow-minded Jews can only imagine that Jesus speaks of literal physical death. And so they ridicule him, asking him if he thinks he's greater than Abraham and the prophets, all of whom physically died. To them, Jesus' statement that the one who keeps his word will never taste death only proves that, they have, that he has a demon. And they would say something like, greater than Abraham, Jesus? Who do you think you are, anyway? Well, if I were Jesus, and of course you know I'm not, but if I were him... If I were he, grammatically, I think I might have said something like, who do I think I am? I'm really glad you asked that question. And then Jesus goes ahead and he answers them by making the two claims that the Jews really don't like. Go on to verse 54. 
Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. And you have not come to know Him, but I know Him. And if I say that I do not know Him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know Him and keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So in answer to the Jews' question of who do you think you are, Jesus first says, well, my father is the one whom you Jews claim as your God. Here, Jesus plainly states that Almighty God, creator of the universe, is his very own father. When he says that, he means it in a way that goes beyond the Jews' idea of God as their father. Jesus is saying that he and God the Father share the same essence, the same character, and the same nature. This is the same as Jesus saying, I am God, just like God the Father is God. And Jesus absolutely did claim to be divine. Along with that, Jesus also claimed eternal existence. He said that Abraham rejoiced to see his day. Now, it's not clear what he meant by that. I mean, did Abraham somehow know that one of Isaac's descendants would be the Savior of the world? Right? No idea. But somehow, according to Jesus, and I'm going to believe him, Abraham had some kind of knowledge about the coming of Jesus, or about his life, or about his purpose. Something. It says, he saw my day, and he rejoiced to see it. He was glad. Whatever the case, the Jews, once again, don't understand what Jesus is talking about at all. They assume that Jesus meant that he had met, met Abraham personally. And while that's entirely possible, and that's a whole other topic of conversation, right? We can talk about Melchizedek, we can talk about the angel of the Lord, we can talk about Old Testament appearances of Jesus. We're not going to get into that today. It's possible Abraham and Jesus met face to face that way at some point, but that doesn't matter here. Because after the Pharisees scoffed at Jesus' claim that Abraham knew something about him, Jesus went on to say this. And I'm going to read it a little different uh, translation here. Before Abraham came into being. That might be a little more literal translation. Before Abraham came into being. Or one version even says, before Abraham was. Before he existed. Before Abraham was, I am. And Jesus makes the same statement that we saw in our passage last week. We mentioned there about how that was the description of himself that God gave to Moses as a means of identifying God to the Israelites in Egypt. I am. And that name is a statement of eternal existence that only God can claim. You know, no, no other human being, no human being can claim that. We came into existence at a particular point in time, and then a while later we were born. That's, that's the record of our existence, isn't it? We, came, we were conceived, we, we spent that time in our mother's body, and then we were born. We didn't have a pre-existence like that. Jesus did. 
all other entities, our created beings, humans, animals, plants, even aliens, if they actually exist, and I'm not saying they do, but if they do, they're all created beings. Only God is eternal, having no beginning or end. And Jesus claimed this eternal existence for himself, which was another way that he claimed to be God. Of course, the Jews, the Jews could not accept that claim and still not follow Jesus. I mean, because if he is, well, okay, we believe that you're eternal, but we're still not going to follow you. That is not going to fly. So they prepared to stone Jesus to death. My Bible says that Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And we don't know really what that means, but I think it means that he prevented the Jews from seeing him as he left. If you want to say it this way, you science fiction fans, he invoked the cloak of invisibility, right? And he just walked out. You don't have to say it that way, but that's how I think of it. The fact that they were going to kill him right there. I mean, they're still in the temple area. The fact that they were going to kill him right there means they understood very well that Jesus was claiming to be equal with God. They just didn't accept that claim. Now, the whole discussion of spiritual fathers raises some questions, or it should. Like, first of all, and I think the mo- one of the most important questions that you have to answer. You can think you can ignore it, but ultimately you will have to answer this question. So I think it's good for you to address it. Who is your spiritual father? Because I hope by now that you know that you do have a spiritual father. You do. Every one of us here does. And I hope you also know that there are only two possibilities for who that is. We've discussed them both here. Is God your spiritual father? And I hope that answer is yes. Or is it Satan? And of course, I really don't want the answer to be yes to that. These really are the only choices you have. Now you might say, well, I never chose Satan as a spiritual father. Maybe not, like on purpose, by name. But if you haven't chosen God, then you have chosen. And you are still choosing Satan. That's harsh, that's stark, but it's true. So the first question is, who is your spiritual father? And the second question, and again, uh, i got to say, dovetailing with what John talked about in opening exercises this morning, how do you know who is your spiritual father, and then how do you know? So let's say you claim that God is your spiritual father. Don't forget, the Jews claimed that as well. And Jesus told them that their spiritual father was actually Satan. So how do you know who your spiritual father is? Well, it comes down to two things. First one is, what do you believe about Jesus Christ? What do you believe about Jesus Christ? Do you believe that he's the actual son of God, the Messiah sent by God to be the savior of all mankind? Because that's the first half of this. You have to have that kind of belief in order to be a child of God, for God to be your father. But there's another thing that Jesus said is necessary for God to be your spiritual father. Jesus said, you must keep his word and continue in his word, which of course implies two other things. It means that you must know his word and you must obey his word. Jesus told the Jews that Satan was their spiritual father. And he could tell that. He knew that because they did the things that Satan does, like lying and murder. Even if they hadn't actually committed that murder yet, they'd committed it in here, hadn't they? They were taking Jesus out already in their hearts. They had already gone there. 
Those who belong to God do what God does, like speak the truth. And they do the things that honor God. That's not salvation by works, by the way. That's works as evidence of salvation. Who is your spiritual father? How do you know? Well, you know by your fruit, don't you? You know by what your life is like, by what you say, by what you do, by what goes on in your head. That's how you know. No, I'm not talking about, I'm struggling with something. I'm talking about you've given yourself over to it. You know who your spiritual father is. The third question that comes to my mind as we read this passage here is, what influence are you having on others as they choose their spiritual father? Now this third question is pretty important. How does what you say and do affect other people as they choose their spiritual father? Are you leading them to God? Showing them how there is life in having faith in Christ? Does your life demonstrate the freedom and truth that are found in being a true follower of Jesus? If the answer is yes, then praise God. Continue to live that life of godly influence, giving those around you every reason to choose God as their spiritual father. But if the answer is no, and this is a hard conversation to have, if the answer is no, if your life leads people away from Jesus and toward Satan, know this, you bear responsibility for that influence. Matthew chapter 18 verse 7 says that it is inevitable that stumbling blocks will come, but woe to him through whom they come. Those are Jesus' words. You cannot afford to be the one who leads others astray. And if you really have chosen God as your spiritual father already, then really live it out. I mean, really live it out. And and again, John, I almost said, why don't you just come up and give us your message again? Because, you know, we could have done just as well there. We really could have. That's going to happen one of these days, by the way. Just preparing you now. Yeah, you know that. One of these days we're going to have John up here. Or John's going to bring us a, a message, I think. But if you really have chosen God as your spiritual father already, then really live it out. I mean, study God's Word so you'll know better every day how to keep it and how to continue in it. Be aware at all times of the influence that you're having on others and do all that you can to help them become true followers of Jesus. Nurture them in that decision if they make it. But if you haven't yet chosen to follow Jesus, my question would be, why not? And I often ask that question, with a lot of different considerations. And this consideration is this. Do you really intend, hear this again, do you really intend for Satan to be your spiritual father? Now there are people in the world who will ignorantly say yes. Or maybe advisedly say yes out of some misguided something. I don't even know what that would be. Because they can't imagine what's coming. Would you really choose Satan, knowing that along with that choice comes deception, suffering, eternal spiritual death? The things that Robert was talking about in his community meditation, the darkness in the life that you have now, as opposed to the light that you can have in Christ. Would you really choose Satan if you knew that all those things were coming your way? Maybe you didn't realize that if you don't choose to follow Jesus, you really are choosing to follow Satan. Maybe you didn't know that there are only two choices. 
Maybe you didn't realize how bad things will be for you if you don't choose to follow Jesus. Or maybe you don't realize how good things will be for you if you do choose to follow Jesus. Whatever the case, if you're ready today to choose God as your spiritual father, you can. On his terms. Believe in him. Believe in Jesus as the Son of God and Savior. Believe that he died on the cross to take the penalty for your sin on himself. And believe that he rose from the dead to give you the hope of resurrection. Repent of your sin, turning away from Satan's way of life and embracing Jesus' way of life. Confess your faith in Jesus to the rest of us here and be baptized into him for the forgiveness of your sin, receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then keep his words and continue in his words, helping others find the way that you have found. If you choose Jesus today, please come forward as we stand and sing the invitation song.